some of you may have recognized that that psalm was a bit heavy. Uh, well, we've actually been in this message series over the last few weeks called Beautiful, Disappointing, Hopeful. And the reason why we've been in this sermon series is we've talked about how these three words really describe the arc of the Christian story that we believe in uh, as Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian here, welcome. This is a great series to actually be joining us because you get an introduction as to what Christians believe and how we make sense of the world. Now, we've been really pondering these two questions. First, is Christianity true? Is it true not only something that's worth putting my faith in, uh, where the object of my faith is sturdy and um, has some historicity to it, um, but also is Christianity compelling? Is it worth me orienting my life around? Okay, if it's true, that's great. And if it's true, is it worth something for me to, to really give every part of who I am to this Jesus person. Now, as we've been exploring these questions, we've been talking about these three words, beautiful, disappointing, and hopeful, really describe not only the Christian story, but also our human experience. We all live in this world of beauty and disappointment. Now, uh, last week we talked about disappointment and how Christians believe that disappointment, despair, the brokenness of the world that we experience comes in. Um, uh, when we talked about how God created the world to be beautiful, we talked about how gratitude is a proper response to, to a world of beauty. World of beauty, cultural beauty, as well as people and the beauty in people. And this practice of gratitude is something that may not come naturally for many of us, but gratitude is something that we're to experience as we lean into the reality of a life that's beautiful. Well, what do we do with disappointment? Uh, with disappointment, it's really the invitation is, is for us to lean into a practice called grieving. To actually be able to sit with the grief that our world inhabits. Now I realize this might be an uncomfortable thing, especially in a place like America. Because in the West, we are so used to everything being up and to the right. The gleaming social media profiles. And yet, here we are. We're talking about a psalm about grieving. But I realize for every single one of us as human beings, we all live within the tension of beauty and disappointment, don't we? Somehow we have to figure out a way to navigate between how do we live with all the good things that happen in life, not only the good things that happen, but also the great pleasures that we have in life, um, yet also live in reality in the sober-minded way where we're also confronted with reality. Now this tension, uh, another way of putting this is like there's two different extremes, right, of how we approach life. On one extreme, there's people who tend to be optimists. So optimists, for instance, are people who think everything, the glass is half full every single time. Like, let's just look at the bright side. Forget about everything that's going wrong. And so one extreme is to be an optimist. If you're from the West Coast, for instance, you're probably, and I'm just kidding, maybe, I don't know. But like, right, like, now pessimists is another extreme though, right? Pessimists are basically people who see that the, the glass is half empty. And so as a result, we can cynically be able to look at what's wrong with everything and what's wrong with people. In fact, some of you who are pessimists have already judged this sermon, even though we're five minutes in. I get it, you know? Now, how do we live between the two? being neither optimist nor pessimist, but somehow living with the tension of beauty and disappointment. As someone who grew up kind of in an immigrant family from a Korean-American heritage, I know that from this immigrant background, we were definitely taught to be pessimists. We were taught that the world is awful and difficult. Now, coming from a Korean history, you have to understand, my parents came from a war-torn generation. So, and then prior to that, they came from a nation that was occupied by the Japanese. And so as a result, there was, 
this, this sense that life is just difficult and hard. And so we come to this country so that you would toil. And the way that you work is basically the way that you work through your grief is you work harder. So that was basically our mentality is, yes, life is hard and difficult, but we just work harder. But meanwhile, I'd go to church settings, especially church settings in the States. And in church settings, you know, verses like rejoice in the Lord always. Don't be anxious for anything. Praise the Lord. Like that was it, right? Like God is good. Okay, thank you. Yes, uh, I realized some of you were like, that came out of nowhere, Drew. Like give us some prep next time. Yeah, Um, and all the time. That's right. That was the mantra that people would use. It was overly leaning into this idea that God is good all the time. And therefore, so there was this weird mix then of the, the culture I grew up in, which was super pessimistic. And then there was the culture of optimism from the church where there was no room for grief. And yet in the scriptures, it talks about how we live in the tension of beauty and disappointment. Now, here's the thing. There's actually this framework. Here's a framework, another framework of the Christian story. It starts with creation, God creating the world to be beautiful and uh, creation. Then there's the fall, sin enters the world. And then Jesus comes as a way of restoring the way that the world is supposed to be. And we've touched on this over the last few weeks. Jesus comes and he gives these glimpses of beauty in the midst of disappointment. He, he calms the raging seas. He heals the infirmities of the sick. Now, in the book of Revelation, there's this view that kind of in the end, God will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. We call this restoration. The restoration of all things. Now, notice in the arrow that's listed here, though, the arrow is we live in this tension in the world right now between redemption. When Jesus has come, the church has come to be a vehicle, an agent of transformation, and yet ultimate restoration. We live in this in-between world. Now, theologians call this season already and not yet. Turn to your neighbor and say already and not yet. That's right. We live in this moment of already and not yet. So as a result, we live within the tension. And oftentimes, if I lean one way or the other, overly optimistic or overly pessimistic, I've actually missed kind of a biblical worldview of how things are supposed to be. And yet, hopefully, as I live within this tension, I continue to lean into this thing called hope. Now, here's the thing about the scriptures, though, and you may be surprised by this, because contrary to some popular opinion, especially in American Christianity, some people think that, oh, American Christianity, all it's about is power, wealth, and influence. And yet, a majority of the scriptures, the people who follow God, were situated uh, in times of peril and exile and slavery and being oppressed minorities, That's who most of the scriptures were written for and written by. It was people who were undergoing incredible difficulties and sufferings. And so as a result, what's so unique about this is if you look in the Judeo-Christian songbook or the Psalms, especially one that was read earlier, So think about it. This is the songbook, like the songs that we just sang about Jesus reigning over it all. This songbook is the songbook that people who followed God would say, this God, this is who you are. Now, here's the thing about this songbook. 40% of this songbook are full of laments as a community lamenting before God. God, this world is disappointing. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, 70% of the Psalms have elements of lament. So if you can imagine, 70% 
have elements. Sure, they'll have some praise here and there, but somewhere embedded even within these songs are songs of pain, of grief, of sadness, and of sorrow. Now, that tells you then about the kind of community that the scriptures were written in and the kinds of communities and where they were situated. They were situated where difficulty and pain were part of the normal experience, human experience. Now, check out the psalm that was just read for us earlier. Look at what it says. It says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. And look at how the psalm ends. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend, period. You thought you were having a tough day, you know, <laughs> like, can you imagine? This is how the psalm ends, with no resolution. Darkness is my closest friend. Now, that's very un-American, un-Disney. Why? Because it ends with incredible pain and sorrow, period. Giving permission, then, to the experience of lament. Now, uh, different counselors have actually talked about um, our response to difficulties that happen in the world. There's actually two categories that I found helpful when it comes to pain that we experience. First, it's called dirty pain, and second is called clean pain. And different schools of counseling, when they talk about dirty pain and, and clean pain, dirty pain is the kind of pain that is a result of bad decisions that I make in my own life. So, yes, there's a pain that comes to people who have worked and done well and been good people, in quotes. Like, we've done the best we can, and yet these curveballs come out of nowhere where pain and suffering hit all of us. Now, the human experience, no matter how wealthy one is, how, how, what neighborhood they came from, everyone experiences pain and suffering in some sort of way, Clean pain is the kind that comes to everyone. Dirty pain is the kind of pain that comes as a result of poor decisions that we make. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? Last week I talked about how shame, blaming, uh, as well as kind of insecurities and fear. A lot of times my shame leads me to make poor decisions in how I treat other people. And that leads me to different conflicts with other people. And so some of the pain that I experience relationally with my spouse, for instance, um, I wish it was all her fault. But it's not. It's also my fault. Like, I have to take responsibility. Now, dirty pain is the pain that I'm experiencing relationally or that I experience relationally because of decisions that I've made. Whether it's, you know, the scriptures talk about uh, sins like lusts of the flesh. Whether I'm following the lusts of the flesh. Whether it's the pride of life. My pride that leads me to make poor decisions. So as a result, every single one of us, because we're all sinful, broken human beings, we all have dirty pain. Dirty pain that comes to us as a result of, of what we do. Actually, there's this one Christian comedian. I love this little clip where he said that one of, one of the common prayers that Christians pray is like before they eat, they pray, God, bless this food to our bodies. And one of the things he talks about is how he'll, he'll say like, 
He said, Christians will praise God bless these Cheetos to our bodies and somehow change the molecular structure of these Cheetos so that somehow they would be a blessing and bring health and fullness to my body. You know? And he was, he was just making fun of how Christians somehow, like what we say with our words, yet how we behave is so different. And the reality is all of us, because we're just sinful human beings, no matter how old you are, no matter what background you come from, we all experience dirty pain. Now, this principle then of, of dealing with the repercussions of dirty pain actually comes to us in the scriptures. Check this out. Look at what Paul writes to the church in Galatia. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Now, what do we do with dirty pain? You know, one of the most beautiful things about scripture is that even in dirty pain, even though we might make mistakes, even though we, out of our insecurity, shame, blaming tendencies, we experience dirty pain, the scriptures are replete with a God who is completely gracious to us and invites us to confession and repentance, to confess our sins and to repent. Now, I realize if you're not a Christian here, this posture might seem so dear. I don't want to confess. I don't want to repent. But you see, central to the Christian experience is someone then who acknowledges that I contribute to some of the dirty pain that I experience and that others experience. And as a result of that, my posture then hopefully is one of self-examination in which I'm willing to confess and repent. Now, that calls us, especially as proud New Yorkers, to humble ourselves and to say, God, I messed up in this area. Tina, who's my wife, I messed up. My kids, David and Avery, I messed up. And believe me, I can go to different people all over the place and recognize that I contribute to the problem. Please forgive me. Now, confession and repentance, here's the beautiful thing, right? Because some people, they're like, no way, God doesn't, there's no way we would do that before God because God then will punish us and smite us. And yet, here's what it says in the scriptures. It says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, the kind of God that God is, he welcomes us to bring our dirty pain before God, to confess and to repent and to change our ways. Now, what about clean pain, though? So while that's a posture of dirty pain, what about clean pain? What do we do with the pain that befalls us when it seems like we haven't done anything wrong, the natural disasters that come, the financial catastrophic things that happen in the market, the wars that seem to break out of nowhere, what do we do with those illnesses of people that we love or, me, or even the illnesses that come upon us? What about clean pain? Now, this is a puzzle and a question that plagues not only Christians who choose to believe in a good God, but everyone, whether you're an atheist, agnostic, everyone has wrestled with suffering and death. And the question of why, why these things happen. I remember reading an article after 9-11, and it said, after 9-11, even atheists choose to pray. Now, in the article, it was, it was asking, like, who are, who are you praying to if you're an atheist? And they said, I don't know. I just feel led to pray. 
See, because a human experience, whenever we go through suffering or difficulty or clean pain or things that seem to come out of nowhere, even though I might have been living my life in a manner that would be honorable and righteous, clean pain comes to us all. And it's one of the most difficult things to manage and wrestle through. We're actually uh, doing a discipleship course right now called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro, he writes about how grief, what grief does, grief as a response to pain and suffering and difficulty, especially as it relates to clean pain, it enlarges our souls. Somehow it does a transformative work within us, as unresolved as it might be. Now, I recognize, even right now, it's probably too quick for me to be like, hey, this is what Christians believe about how you deal with clean pain. Because the reality is, every single one of us, whenever we're going through painful situations, it's difficult to be told, hey, this is what you do with your pain. Um, So at the risk, though, of going through, here are some thoughts about how scripturally Christians believe this is how we relate to pain and suffering and difficulty. Now, in the chapter on the wall, which is the dark night of the soul that Christians go through, and this is oftentimes where doubts come in and pain comes in, right? Because as someone who claims to follow a good God, all of a sudden when clean pain comes into my life, what do I do with this if I believe that God is good? And yet here I am, I've prayed for the health of my mom, and yet her cancer will not go away. What do I do with this pain? Now, here's what Scazzaro contends about ways in which the wall or difficulties actually can meet us in more significant ways. Here's what it says. Number one is a greater level of brokenness. The scriptures teach us, again, about having this posture of humility. Somehow, if things in my life are going up and to the right all the time, Somehow I like to think that I'm in control, that I think that I'm the boss of my own fate. And yet, scriptures talk about there's moments when God gives us these pains. The Apostle Paul writes, these moments of weakness where God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. So a greater level of brokenness and humility. Number two is a greater appreciation for for holy, unknowing, or mystery. Again, as people who are so advanced have uh, the click of information around the world at my fingertips with Google, what does it look like for me as a finite human being to recognize I'm a human being and there's just an unknown mystery that God is doing around me? The scriptures talk about God's ways being higher than our ways and we don't quite understand The book of Genesis talks about the story of Joseph who who looks back on his life and he says, what others meant for evil, God intends it for good. It's just a mystery. And again, this all weaves together into what does it look like for us to have this humble disposition towards life? Number three is a deeper ability to wait on God. I hate this one um, because I'm an impatient New Yorker who wants things quickly and right away and for it to be delicious. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, this, but the ability to wait. One of Jesus' uh, brother, James, who actually writes to the church, to the early church, he says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because it produces perseverance. Ugh. What if I don't want perseverance? But waiting, ability to wait, 
Some of us are in that season right now of clean pain. Maybe you're single and you've just been waiting to meet somebody. You should come to Hinge for the holiday. I'm just kidding. Um, but maybe you're someone, you're in a relationship or you're, you're married, going through a season of infertility and you're just waiting, hoping, praying. Ugh. This is a hard list to stomach. And lastly, a greater detachment from the world. The Apostle Paul says, whether with a lot or with a little, I've learned what it means to be content. In other words, to be detached from the things of the world. Some of the clean pain that we're experiencing, I mean, even as you reflect on the clean pain that every single one of us, by virtue of being human beings, we're experiencing clean pain in some sort of ways, which one of these might God be revealing or pressing into our hearts? Now, this idea, though, of suffering and difficulty and how it shapes us and forms us, do you see how unique that is to the Christian experience? Because today in the West, the way that we get around pain and difficulties, we medicate it. Or we just amuse ourselves to death, to, to quote Neil Postman, to basically flood our minds with Netflix or vacations or tourist traps or the major league playoffs Yankees aren't in it, by the way, but nonetheless, there's all these ways in which we've, we, we just try to ignore pain or difficulty, and yet a Christian perspective actually embraces suffering and pain. Julian of Norwich, uh, an English theologian from the 15th century, here's what she writes. Now, think about how ridiculous this kind of statement is. She says, first, there is the fall. In other words, sin that enters the world that we explored last week. And then we recover from the fall. And both are the mercy of God. Now, every part of me is like, uh, Julian, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. It, it, like, there is no mercy in either of those things. And yet somehow she writes, after a lived experience of faith in God, that both are the mercy of God. I remember my therapist told me when I, he said, he said to me, he said, hey, one truth that I've come across is that after the age of 21, there is nothing you can learn spiritually from success. The only spiritual lessons you can learn after the age of 21 come through suffering and failure. And I told him, I don't want to learn any more spiritual truths. You know, like I think I've learned enough up to this age. But think about your own life. Think about the ways in which it's been pain that somehow has shaped us more than success. What success does, what up and to the right does, oftentimes for us we're so prone to falling into our own pride and arrogance, especially as New Yorkers who are the smartest, most skillful, talented people and workers in the world. There's something about clean pain, though, that shapes us, turns us to the mercy 
of God. Notice in the psalm that was read earlier, look at what it says. It says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? One of the things I appreciate about this psalm is notice the posture. I cry to you. I pray to you. I beg you. There are these ways in which the psalmist is completely comfortable with bringing all their complicated grief to God. And in so doing, here's what it demonstrates to us then. What do we do with our grief, our sadness, our longing? And here's what it reveals. It's okay to bring your complicated grief to God. To come before the God of heaven and earth to share before God, God, it feels like darkness is my best friend. I cry out to you. I pray to you. And the longing that exists within each of our hearts when we're going through a significant season of depression or darkness or whatever, the scriptures actually normalize the experience of people who would come and bring this before God. As a prayer, as a song, as a community. Remember how I mentioned at the end of this psalm, what's so puzzling about it is that it ends unresolved. It's like, it doesn't end with like, but God, you came through at the end. And because you came through, I'm going to praise you with my whole life. It doesn't actually end that way. It ends with just darkness is my closest friend, period. You know, and I was thinking about this reality. Like I mentioned, most of the scriptures, both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament scriptures, were written from the, from the perspective of people who were in exile, who were enslaved, who were an oppressed minority. Now, what in the world is that all about? Now, here's what's stunning is actually in the book of Hebrews, there's actually this chapter that outlines these people of faith, incredible faith. And what he, when the author of the book of Hebrews sums up the journey of these people who are the paragons of what faith is supposed to be, check out what's written uh, in the book of Hebrews. It says, there were others who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. I mean, what a beautiful description of someone's life. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Now, I remember reading this and being like, God, what a legacy. What a life. That's the kind of life I want to live. And then, this last part, though. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Are you serious, God? 
I, I mean, part of the reason why I'm willing to go in the valley is because I know there's going to be a mountaintop. You know, like, that, like that's the reason why I want my story. This is my story. Tortured, persecuted, experienced the wonder of God. And then the book of Hebrews is like, actually, and these people died without actually experiencing any kind of fullness or fulfillment of promise. It's like, uh, let me just tap out of this faith that I just said a minute ago that I wanted. How in the world were people who followed Yahweh and Jesus, how were they able to remain faithful? Here's what continues in the book of Hebrews. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. In other words, the clean pain and the sin, the dirty pain that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What could possibly strengthen a people who are hoping, like grasping for some sort of fulfillment of promise of, of deliverance? And yet they would die enslaved. They would die in exile. Why would why would people still press in and believe in the goodness of God? Because of Jesus. Believing in a God who is not detached from the world that we inhabit and that we go through, but believing, but believing in a God who actually comes into the world where we experience our harshest, darkest tragedies, Moments of dirty pain and clean pain. And one of the most stunning revelations of who this God is, as opposed to other gods. Because other gods, of course, they would be deistic gods who would create the world. But you know what? I'm going to leave you guys to mess with yourselves. And yet here's a God who, out of love for his people, would send Jesus into the world to die on a cross to suffer the ultimate scorn and shame on our behalf. St. John of the Cross, a Spanish mystic from the 16th century. Here's what St. John of the Cross is known for writing uh, poetry, and one of the poems that he writes is called The Dark Night of the Soul. It talks about how Christians even could have this experience, a normalized process of going through a dark night of the soul, which goes beyond kind of the cookie-cutter American Christian ways of viewing the world. And here's what St. John of the Cross writes. Whenever anything disagreeable or displeasing or disappointing happens to you, remember Christ crucified and be silent. Sometimes there are no answers. Just an invitation to look at the God who himself suffered on a cross. The God who would know the experience of loneliness, of abandonment, of pain, and hang on a cross. 
I know that, um, you know, in this season, we're going to be approaching the season of Christmas, and it's a little bit early to be talking about the, the Jesus story of his death and resurrection. But honestly, when it comes to Holy Week, there's usually two days that um, tend to get the most airtime or play. And it's Good Friday, the day that Jesus died. And then there's Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, where everyone wears their pastel colors and takes pictures, and we have an ice cream truck outside. Um, but one of the days that often gets lost in that framework is basically Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday is the day when Jesus is in the tomb and the disciples are as confused as heck. They have no idea what they gave their lives to for three years. They have no idea what's going to happen, whether they're going to be arrested or killed. Their Savior is dead and buried in the ground. And it's this period of Holy Saturday that I think some of us perhaps, when, whenever we're going through difficult grief of pain that we experience, it's this experience of Holy Saturday that when this hall of faith is shared, it's a story of these people who, even though they maybe did not see the fulfillment of the promise, yet they still clung, believing and hoping now, the earliest Christians, though, they believed and hoped, and they knew that there was a resurrected Jesus on the other side. And yet, there still remained this experience of Holy Saturday. Just a little bit unsure. Needing to cling to God with all that we carry. <clears throat> 